From the Virginia Council for Social Studies, this is the Content to Classroom podcast. I'm Sam Futrell. Hello, everyone. We are delighted to welcome you all to the first episode of this new podcast venture sponsored by the Virginia Council for Social Studies. Each week, we will be joined by experts and master teachers to help us connect historical and current content to social studies classrooms in ways that are actionable and applicable. So let's get to our guests this week. We are joined today by Bianca Moore and Wesley Hedgepath. Bianca Moore is a defense Bianca Moore is a defense attorney from New Orleans who also spends what limited free time she has tutoring students around the country in Spanish and writing. During law school, Bianca discovered that she was passionate about reforming the criminal justice system and dismantling the institutions that create and fuel the cycle of poverty, education disparity, and social violence in black and brown communities. As a staff attorney and bond advocacy fellow at Orleans Public Defender's Office, she is able to do just that. Wesley Hedgepath is a beloved high school social studies teacher here in Richmond, Virginia. He got his master's in secondary social studies education from JMU, specializing in government and politics. He now teaches at the Collegiate School in Richmond, just down the road from me, and also serves as a board member for the National Council for Social Studies. This week, we are centering on a topic that I feel is likely weighing heavy on many teachers around the country, elections. There is tension surrounding this topic in the classroom, even though the electoral process itself, particularly in the United States, is such an integral part of both our history and our current civic duty. I loved this interview. I learned so much. Um, especially because government processes and politics are not my particular social studies strong suit. And I think you all are going to learn a lot too. So without further ado, Bianca Moore and Wesley Hedgepath. Bianca, if you just want to start, what's kind of your connection to this? What kind of brings you here today? Um, Well, specifically, I would say like around the topic of equity in elections, um, three things. Well, first, I'm a Woke Vote Fellow. So pretty much Woke Vote is an organization that invests in activating and engaging individuals to become organizers, right? And so specifically, um, engaging folks of color. So that's voting rights, voter suppression, um, ensuring that individuals know um, where to vote and how to vote. That's something that's big on my heart. Secondly, um, I absolutely love doing these types of um, programs, just inform people of the various, um, I, I would say the various misconceptions or the various myths about voting and elections and even equity. And one of the ways I do that is by being a public defender, right? So literally my job is to defend the rights of others, particularly poor and indigent, well, indigent people. And so um, in that position, I also serve as a bond advocacy fellow where I tell stories about how the um, bail, the cash, um, well, the cash bail system essentially impacts people and prevents them from bettering their lives. And a lot of people don't know that that's often related to voting and allocation of resources and pretty much the laws that our legislators pass. And then the last way is as a black woman, I feel like my existence is very political in itself, particularly in these times where it seems like individuals cannot agree that black lives matter, even though all lives do in fact matter. We're specifically talking about the black ones right now. Um, and you know, folks can't seem to wrap their heads around that. So I think that by doing shows like this, we can engage in a real good dialogue that can inform students and both the public of the importance of elections and equity. That is amazing. There are so many things that you just said that I want to unpack. Um, and I can't wait to, as we go further into our discussion uh, here today, but I also want to introduce our other podcast guest, which is Wesley. Uh, so Wesley and I kind of know each other from, like I said, from the Richmond teaching scene, if it can be called a scene, <laughs> sometimes it is a scene. Um, so Wesley, we're so happy that you're here today. Um, so can you just tell the listeners just sort of your connection to both of these topics as well? Sure. Yep. Uh, again, thanks for having me. And, um, I'm, I'm so, uh, I, I feel so connected to the topics of, of elections and equity for, for a few reasons. First, just as a citizen, um, you know, elections matter. Uh, like Bianca said, 
Uh, elections have consequences. Uh, who we elect both nationally and locally, it affects our, our, our everyday lives. Uh, secondly, um, as a social studies educator, it's my job to prepare kids for college, career, and civic life. Uh, one of the most important civic duties, of course, is voting in elections, uh, but it's not the only way that, uh, that people can, can participate in civic life. Uh, I also remind students that local elections um, often are, are more consequential uh, to everyday uh, lives than national ones, albeit, I have to say, all of them are very important. Uh, and I think one thing that really interests me uh, about equity and elections is access. Um, you know, certainly the Constitution explicitly outlines suffrage and protects the right to vote. And thankfully, 100 years ago, uh, we made a change to allow women uh, that right to vote. Uh, but still access is, is a challenge. And, and I think some of those challenges, one is, is election day itself, you know, happening on a Tuesday during a work week, and it's only one day. Um, I have to say Virginia and some states uh, have remedied this in, in recent times uh, with no excuse mail-in voting, uh, no excuse early voting. Uh, and, and of course, that is due to COVID-19, uh, but I'm really hoping that that continues and that other states follow suit. I also think that, that candidates, uh, knowing that you can run for office is another really important aspect of civic that our students need to know. And, uh, and minority representation has, has grown uh, and uh, certainly in, in our history, but it's not where it necessarily needs to be. And then finally, I think like voter restrictions is another place that I think uh, really appeals to me when it comes to the, the topic of elections and, and equity. Like as far as photo identification laws, erasure of inactive voter registration lists, uh, felons losing their right to vote, uh, gerrymandering, the list goes on. Uh, so I, 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 that might be a long-winded response, but that's how I feel connected. No, that was perfect. And I think one of the sort of topics that both of you brought up is the limitations that there are when it comes to our voting system, right? And the limitations that come up um, whether you are having enough access to voting or whether you're having enough access to education around voting, because that is something else that we all struggle with as well. So sort of going off of that, Wesley, I'll sort of start with you. How have elections been taught previously in the classroom and how should that change? You know, that's a really good question. It's, uh, I will say it's, it's difficult to identify particular nuances of individual teachers, as you know. Uh, but generally, I could say that, you know, the history that I grew up, uh, you know, having in, in my classroom uh, was really often the winner's history, not the people's history. Uh, you know, we didn't read Howard Zinn's The People's History of the United States, and, um, and uh, Adichie hadn't warned us yet about the dangers of a single story. Um, so now as teachers, we know better. So that means that we need to do better. Uh, our students, you know, come from so many different backgrounds. Um, and, and we should be showing them that, that they matter by including multiple perspectives and cultures in the classroom. And we really need to acknowledge not just the challenges, but celebrate the triumphs as well as of, of, of student culture. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think, you know, history is written by the victors is kind of an old phrase, right? Like at this point, that's not what it should be anymore. Maybe that's what it was um, in the past, but I think our job as educators now is to make sure that every voice is being heard in their historical education and making sure that the truth unequivocally is being told to these kids um, and that truth being backed up by sources that are available to them. So leading up to and following this presidential election, what do you think is important to, for these kids to know? You know, I think it's really important for students to under, understand both the process and the policy. Uh, and what I mean is that the students need to understand uh, our country's core political traditions and values um, as far as what is a primary, you know, what's the difference between that and a caucus? Uh, you know, what's the difference between the popular vote and the electoral college? You know, why do, why do they matter? 
uh, and what are the implications going forward for the Electoral College? Uh, you know, the, the peaceful pass of power. That is, of course, we know, you know a tradition that started in 1800 with uh, President Adams and President-elect Jefferson. They weren't friends, but they respected the process. And so I think I have to say above most things, that's one of the most critical points of preserving American democracy is that peaceful pass. Um, and so students need to know that. They, they should know a whole host of other things uh, as far as the power of the presidency, what's at stake in the election, how does federalism play into this as far as what are the limits to federal power and, um, you know, of course, also running elections. Uh, elections are run by the states and so knowing that and uh, and, and that, that's more about the about the, the processes, but then as far as the policy is concerned, students need to also know about what's the role of government. And, and we can nail that down with specific types of, of policy areas like education or healthcare, something that, that the students can understand um, and see in their own lives. Uh, you know, I, I always like to do an activity with students uh, so they find out their political ideology, doing, doing all sorts of tests. There's one that's the political compass that I particularly like that not only shows the left and right uh, on the political spectrum, but also the up and down, which I say is like the libertarian versus the authoritarian. And it really looks more like what you would see in your geometry class with the, uh, a, a graph. So that's, I think, something that students need to understand. Um, and I think they need to understand that the that majority rules doesn't mean tyranny over the minority um, and understand that that in our democracy, uh, the democratic system should really protect the rights of the minority. Uh, and, you know, that's that's a whole lot. And I could probably say more like, you know, certainly addressing bias and and explaining political socialization. How do they get there? Uh, their viewpoints. Uh, but hopefully uh, students learn about, about those traditions and values. And when they witness the election, uh, they recognize both strengths and flaws of our system, uh, which then of course would hopefully commit them to some informed civic action in the future. Yeah, when you were talking about the tests that students can take to sort of indicate where they fall on political spectrums, um, just through their natural, you know, natural tendencies or natural desires. It reminded me of the Harvard test a little bit, how you go and you take that and you realize, man, I, as a liberal, you know, progressive, I do favor white people, you know, because that has been ingrained in me and that's a bias that I need to recognize. And that's sort of the first step too, right? Is like recognizing that you have that within yourself. So recognizing too where you fall on a political spectrum is so important because I've definitely had kids do those tests before um, finding out where they fall on a political spectrum or there's even a really great test to find out uh, who you truly support based on the issues like in terms of candidates. And it's so funny because the kids will come back and they'll say, well, I'm not, you know, a Republican or I'm not a Democrat or whatever. And it's like, well, I don't know, because that's what the test told us. And that means if you were answering honestly, then maybe those are some things that you should explore, you know, in yourself and try to understand a little bit more where those uh, feelings are coming from, where those biases may lie, and where those supports are going towards, you know, and ultimately take steps to, you know, either if you like where it's going, take steps to continue doing that. But if you don't, like with my experience in the Harvard test, you know, take steps towards like anti-racist education to like actually take down those biases in your own mind and work from within so that you can be a better citizen. So um, going off of that, we have kind of a crazy time right now with voting, you know? I mean, the world <laughs> is just sort of insane. Uh, we have a pandemic raging in the country. And then in the middle of that, we had a resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement in the summer. And it's still continuing today. I mean, we know Breonna Taylor's uh, murderers were not charged. 
And that was extremely disappointing news to find out. I believe it was today or yesterday that we found that out. And there's just so much tension. And it also feels like there is such a struggle, both to get to the polls in terms of physically, because COVID exists and it is something that exists in our society right now. Um, But also, I know some people might be feeling a little bit like their vote doesn't matter. You know, like I think you can kind of feel like that sometimes, like you start to feel so small in the middle of all these things. So Bianca, I was just sort of wondering, have any procedures sort of changed with voting right now? And what would you say maybe to someone who does feel like their vote doesn't really count this year? Um, absolutely. Great question. Great. Um, I would say that a lot of the procedures in voting, they have not changed too much. However, I will say specifically here in Louisiana, however, it seems as if a lot of individuals are fighting for them to become more inclusive of individuals who are suffering from COVID or who have particular vulnerabilities that don't allow them to go to polling centers. And specifically, um, I would say that a lot of individuals, particularly in Louisiana, we had the Power Coalition, they've been suing or writing um, to their Secretary of State to allow um, uh, ex- more exceptions for individuals to vote absentee. So here in Louisiana, there were some very specific rules uh, that you had to follow in order to vote absentee specifically. And one of them did not include certain illnesses um, or vulnerabilities to COVID. And our Secretary of State, down to the last second, um, was not going to make any changes. So essentially, we had to have the Power Coalition sue. And now there are some exceptions to allow people to vote from their house absentee um, in this upcoming election. And honestly, that was necessary because of the history of voter suppression that we have here in Louisiana. Not a lot of people know, but we had an entire convention in 19, I'm sorry, in 1898 that was specifically geared toward disenfranchising the African-American vote and those individuals who were not considered white, such as Italians and um, other minority groups. And in doing so, they essentially um, instituted grandfather clauses and poll taxes and just various methods to disenfranchise newly enfranchised citizens. And they were pretty successful because they scrubbed the rolls of over like 96 individuals. Um, so that's hundreds of thousands of people who lost their right to vote in within about a year's span. And so now that we don't have grandfather clauses or poll tax, but we have voter ID laws, we have people closing polls early, we have um, essentially felon disenfranchisement, things like that, um, or just simply limiting people's right to vote absentee. And and, and so in that, we essentially had to like make a lot of changes. Um, And I would say some of the advice I would give to people who are suffering from that is one to be like, get informed. There's so much information online um, that can help you essentially understand what your rights are. There's various organizations such as Vote, um, also such as Vote Here in Louisiana, Voice of the Experience, who are geared toward helping you. But essentially, just know that there has been a long history of individuals preventing you from having this right. And why? Because they know it's power. Like they know that your vote literally translates to power and representation and oftentimes money too. And so if you truly do not like the state of your community or your society, or maybe you simply just want your kid not to have to go to school um, and be able to be taught virtually, those are things that can be changed by writing to your legislator um, by voting for a different legislator if he's not responding or, or simply just going out and attending demonstrations. And so to someone who doesn't see the power of voting, just know that every aspect of your life is affected by someone who you elect. From your district attorney, if you're facing um, problems with your community being locked up or being over-policed, from your uh, local assessor, if you're trying to figure out why your neighbor's property that's smaller than yours has a higher value than yours, you know, because you're of a certain race or gender, Um, you know, all the way down to the individuals who pick, in Louisiana, I would say, who pick your nominations for the Democratic or Republican or Independent Party. And so just know that your vote does count and there is power in voting. And if you need help finding that, there are so many um, resources out there for you. And I'm sure you can connect to any one of us and we can point you that way. 
So you sort of just touched on this as well. And Wesley, feel free to jump in um, on this also. But where do y'all sort of see the greatest pitfalls and the greatest opportunities for growth in our electoral processes, our processes right now? I, I would say I see the biggest growth is moving, hopefully moving from this two-party system. I mean, I'm actually, I like the two-party system, but I think now I see where the issues are. Um, one, it seems like both parties are actually becoming very unrepresentative of their constituents. It does not look as if Democrats or Republicans right now are particularly fond of their choices. And it seems like people feel like they're shackled and they have no choice but to vote with who the party has chosen, because if not, then eventually they might risk someone who they don't want to be in office getting into office. So it just seems like people don't feel like they have real options in that essentially they're voting against someone rather than for something, which is a shame because we're supposed to be a democracy, well, a representative democracy where the government is representative of the ideals of the people. And it seems that with this two-party system, we're moving a little bit away from that. Um, but in regards to growth, I think it's, I think in the future, well, even not in the future now, people are becoming more educated. They're becoming more civically engaged. They're going to demonstrations. They're calling the legislators. They're writing letters. Um, I recently got a text about this robobot that will write a letter for me <laughs> to my legislator with a few texts. That's amazing. I like before. I would say COVID, I, I, I've never experienced that. So it seems like people are getting more innovative, right? And so I think um, growth-wise, I see people being more informed and engaged in the process. Yeah, I would just say that I think uh, I'm, I'm really hopeful and excited about the political energy that I see uh, in the United States today. Uh, you know, certainly we see the growth of, of a populist message um, on both both sides of the aisle uh, that really uh, is invigorating and hitting a nerve uh, with a lot of people. Um, one thing I think that uh, you know might be an alternative view or just a, a, a different perspective on on the two party system. Uh, I loved Bianca's response there. Uh, I would almost argue that the the two party systems are or the, excuse me that the parties are losing power. Uh, that that the convention just doesn't do it like it used to, right? We used to have this really elaborate convention, um, and maybe COVID was the the reason to 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 change the format of that. And I appreciated how democratized the the conventions were this time on on television, just so more people could view it. Uh, but I think that, as Bianca did say, uh, you know that the the parties. Uh, not representing the the uh, the people necessarily having these uh, these candidates that um, don't necessarily represent the true values of the party either. Uh, just as another example, and and then I'll I'll, I'll let us move on. But and uh, the Republican Party uh, in their convention um, that instead of adopting a new platform for the 2020 um, election cycle, they just recycled their one their platform for the 2016 cycle and really uh, giving carte blanche to their uh, to their candidate so yeah I'll just put off of that a little bit I mean I definitely have family members who you know vote on both sides of the aisle who don't in terms of like the presidential election at least they don't really support their candidate for quote their party right but they're still gonna vote for that candidate because they feel that voting for a third party is just a waste of their vote, you know? And that's such a shame because it shouldn't be, especially because, and you know, I may be going down a wrong road here. So feel free, I think both of you are, you're both experts on this topic. So if I say something wrong, feel free to jump in and correct me. But I just think that when you have your electoral system so tied into capitalism and the raising of funds. And it just feels sometimes like, you know, I mean, frankly, both Trump and Biden right now are both very, very wealthy white men, right? And 
it feels sometimes like how can anyone who is different sort of like reach that height um, and really get there without kind of buying into the system in a way. You know what I mean? I don't know if that makes sense or if that is like accurate, but, um, but yeah. And it does. And uh, Samantha, I think one other thing I want to add to, to your comment is uh, that, you know, a publicly funded election uh, could solve a lot of our problems. We'll be right back after a quick break. If you're listening to this podcast on our release date of October 1st, 2020, or anytime in the near future, then I would love to invite you to join the Virginia Council for Social Studies at our upcoming event, Scholars Hour. Every third Thursday of the month, from now into the foreseeable future, we will be hosting an hour of virtual panel discussions with experts from around the state. This month, Scholars Hour will be on October 15th from 6 to 7 p.m., and our topic is Teaching During the Pandemic. It is going to be so helpful and so practical for all of us who are teaching right now, whether we're in the classroom or Zooming with students from home. So make sure to register today using the Eventbrite link in our show notes. Now, back to the show. We have sort of talked about these processes uh, that kind of can be really promising in terms of the electoral process. And we've also talked about some that really have a lot of room for growth. But in the classroom, when you are introducing topics about elections to kids, some things can come up that are really difficult to to talk about. I mean, specifically, I mean, even the Black Lives Matter movement going on right now, I mean, it's hard sometimes as teachers, even if you are doing that anti-racist education, to feel really comfortable with doing it right and doing it well and doing it justice, right? Because like, that's our jobs. Um, And I say that, you know, as a white woman too, right? And acknowledging that um, to, you know, my kids as well, saying that I recognize that. And because of that, I am never gonna fully understand the experience of people of color in our country, right? And because of that, I wanna come into it as sensitive um, as I can. So when you're dealing with difficult topics around elections, kind of how do you sort of introduce those things, Leslie? And what's kind of your way of handling those difficult topics with kids? Yeah, really, really uh, tough issues, uh, hard questions, um, certainly um, need a a, a delicate approach. I typically will start off uh, classes uh, building norms. Um, So as an example, um, you know, I had a discussion with students today about that. Uh, One of them is listen, listen, listen process. So the idea that uh, listening is a lost art, right? That uh, we need to do more of. And, And when you think that you should talk, you should probably listen more. It probably says what other people are talking, what other people are saying. Um, so, so then we try to take periodic norm checks along the way to make sure that we're all sticking to it and maybe even uh, we could give ourselves a grade on how we're doing so far. Uh, and then, you know, we'll, I'll give students sentence starters. Um, AVID has a really great, uh, AVID is advancement via individual determination. Uh, they have a really great uh, list of sentence starters like that you can ask for clarification, you know, can, can you explain what blank means? Or probing for higher level thinking, like what, are, what examples do you have of blank? Or building on what other people say. It's like, I thought about that also and I'm wondering why blank. Uh, or disagreeing, you know, I, my idea is slightly different than yours. I believe that blank. You know, providing them, them that gives them confidence to, uh, to answer tough questions. But even still, uh, after that, I'll often just do very benign issues in small groups. So it's uh, low stakes like dress code, maybe that might be something that's fun for them to discuss and less intimidating. And then after some practice and building continual trust, then we can really switch gears to more controversial topics and also talking about them uh, as a full class rather than just uh, small groups. Um, everything is like sort of politicized right now, right? Uh, it's 
in some ways it's good, right? Because politics do affect, you know, almost everything in our lives. But it sometimes feels even difficult to bring up like sports in class, you know, we had teachers who were doing Constitution Day and they were sort of worried about Constitution Day and like seeming like they had a particular bias towards teaching their lesson on Constitution Day. So how can we sort of as teachers address things in the classroom without coming across directly as biased, right? Like how can we do that and still maintain that sort of trust in the classroom. This is on my mind all the time. I, um, you know, one of the things that I try to pride myself in is that I really uh, attempt my, uh, I try the best I possibly can to to not let the kids know what I think about something and um, and keep them guessing. And, and if I can do that, then I feel like I've succeeded in a way. Uh, a technique that I think I practice um, pretty often is that when we're talking about, you know, current events or really important topics, uh, I, I always offer multiple sources on the topics. Um, and and I, I also have a really open classroom to, you know, students can respond, uh, especially throughout the year as it progresses when norms are uh, more well, more well practiced, and we're more comfortable with each other. Uh, but I solicit I solicit student feedback and uh, respond only by acknowledging that you know thank you for your response for your uh, your contribution. Uh, I also let the kids know that I'm like that ahead of time that I'm not going to agree or disagree with with uh, what they're saying. Um, I'm also not going to nod my head because that's definitely a validation um, that we don't think about in nonverbals that if someone is nodding as you're speaking, that's an agreement and that's going to validate what the speaker is saying. And so I explain that to them. Uh, finally, I, you know, either I will summarize or have uh, students to play the role of a summarizer where I ask, you know, this is what I think I heard you all say. Um, are, are you all uh, okay with it? Or would you be comfortable publishing this summary of our conversation? Uh, would you be, uh, proud of what I posted if I put it on social media uh, and and sometimes I'll, I'll use the technique of the Harkness discussion um, as well um, that's uh, one of those things from Philip Philip Exeter uh, Academy that is really um, a, a really great tool especially for the humanities um, and there's a role that is the summarizer that I'll have students play uh, in that uh, practicing that and modeling it for others. Awesome. So sort of building off of that, I guess, uh, you know, we're talking about politicization in the classroom. Um, Bianca, you deal with it in a totally different light, especially because it sounds like you have like five jobs that you do. Um, so I wonder if you could sort of kind of respond to like the same question a little bit and maybe say how, you know, equity sort of factors into your job along with that. Um, and how do you sort of balance maintaining equity in your workplace and how do you see that sort of reflected toward you um, while also dealing with this like politicization of everything like that's going on in our culture right now. And so a lot of what like Wesley said, like engaging in a dialogue with individuals more so than attacking them for having a different political view or even a different view about a human being. So I would I would prompt it by saying, well, why do you feel like that? What what led you what led you to believe that? And then I'll say, well, well, honestly, this is this is my this is my point of view. How does yours differ? So by asking questions and not judging them much, like Wesley said, you know, not really inserting your opinions of their behavior or what they're saying. That's how I got them. Um, some of my students to talk about these issues, and I think that if more individuals honestly would ask more questions and repeat back and reflect to that person what they said, instead of like arguing or being very confrontational, then we might get a better understanding of each other and be more comfortable having dialogues about these controversial issues such as race and politics and um, essentially various institutions in society that marginalize people.
hope that answers the question. <laughs> yeah, that was perfect. I was actually listening to a podcast this morning called 10% Happier, and uh, the podcast was on civility in the workplace and how to deal with people who might be coming across as like uncivil or in some ways rude or what have you. And they actually mentioned that technique that you just said, you know, it's actually like a couples counseling technique originally, I guess. Um, and so I guess you can imagine that you and your class or you and your colleague are going through couples counseling together. Um, but it's actually so effective because it becomes a, a, question of curiosity rather than of judgment, right? Like, I'm curious about why you think that. Can I know more about that? And so rather than immediately being on the defensive, it causes the person to question themselves too and to explore in their own mind those like hidden biases that might be there that they don't even recognize, right? Well, um, so moving on to a little bit more about some kids in the classroom, and then we're going to talk a little bit more about what's happening right now in this time of crisis uh, with our election. Uh, one of the things that kind of has been radiating into the media lately has been um, the fact that Trump has mentioned that teachers are teaching kids to hate their country. And I don't think that we can ignore this. And even even saying it out loud, I feel like I am coming across as liberal, you know, because it sounds not real, but it is real. That was a that was a quote that was said, right? And so, um, when when you hear the president say something like that, and then your kids hear that, and then they come to your classroom, how do teachers respond to that? I mean, and what sort of what sort of topics, you know, we sort of go through a lot of topics in history that might come across as unpatriotic as well. This is sort of the second part of that question. And and I think those topics tend to be difficult times in our history where America has been grappling with progress and really resisting it, you know? So how do you deal with students and even their parents who might come into the classroom and say, what you're teaching is unpatriotic, but what you feel as a teacher is you're just doing your job? Wesley, how do you kind of um, respond to that? Another topic that is uh, on my mind quite a bit, but you know, I think we really just need to keep doing what we do best as teachers. Um, that and we should also stand up for our students' rights uh, to understand the real, authentic history, no matter how ugly it is. Um, acknowledging our shortcomings as a nation uh, really proves our strength and our resolve to get better. Uh, it, it proves our willingness to have a growth mindset, which, uh, you know, uh, this idea of, of American exceptionalism uh, it can be a really dangerous approach to education. And frankly, it, it sets up our, our students for failure later in life and in this world uh, to go out um, with such a narrow view of, of history. And furthermore, when when we teach subjects like Black history in America, um, you know, we need to include both the ups and the downs, uh, both the slavery and both the outstanding individuals. So uh, certainly um, one of those uh, tools that recently came under fire was the 1619 project and and I stand by the that project and think it's a really a really fabulous look at uh, a really awful time period for uh, for America um, and it's a very honest look at that and that's what we need and uh, but in addition to that we also need to teach about Sojourner Truth and Muhammad Ali and James Baldwin and Maya Angelou and Barack Obama you know, that, um, like I said earlier, we need to uh, uh, show that we are uh, inclusive in our, our content, that we mirror what our classrooms look like and what our nation looks like, um, and that we're not just talking about the trials and tribulations, but we're also talking about the, the celebrations and, and, um, and bringing those to light for everyone to be able to celebrate. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think even while you were talking, I was just thinking that it would be a really interesting activity to have your students define what a patriotic history education looks like. You know, what does that look like to them? What do they want reflected to them in their classroom? Because 
to me, I mean, like you said, a patriotic education is a growth mindset education. You know, it is looking at principles that our country was established on and working and progressing to meet those principles, because I think that has been a failure for us for a long time. But and if we don't recognize that it was a failure, how can we ever improve on it? So what does representative democracy sort of look like in action? And then how are inequities sort of translated into that system? So in regards to inequities, the difficulties with representative democracy is that the individuals who set it up, it, it's likely to be representative of them, but not necessarily of the entire country. And that's what we see today. And I know we've had a lot of individuals um, throughout history, history who have warned us of the tyranny of the majority. I'm sure Wesley uh, can speak a lot more on that, right? When you have um, the majority essentially who are representing um, the masses, but are not essentially, I would say, I don't wanna say representative, because that's like saying like an apple is an apple, but who are not, um, who do not look like the majority of the country, um, that can be, um, that can be an issue. And so now today we have the United States is very diverse. We have people of all shapes and colors, of all sexual orientations, of all sorts of ideologies. However, it seems as if one specific group of people are being represented in our legislature, in our executive branch, in our judicial branch, and generally it's predominantly white men. And so in regards to that, the laws that are passed, the policies that are um, enacted and the way in which they're executed or interpreted is going to be outfitted in the perspective of the person who have in that seat, which if it is um, a cis white male, what outcomes can we expect them to be very representative of what a cis white male um, views. And so inequities are essentially furthered and I would say groups are further oppressed or marginalized when they don't have individuals who look like them or even think similar to them in these positions. And so I, I think the, the the biggest example of that would essentially be um, women's fight right now to have control of their own body. Because our legislature is heavily male, um, it, 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 it's in their making laws about the woman's body rather than female legislators, it seems as if there's a disconnect in uh, the policies that they're enacting, the costs for whatever services they need or require, as well as um, the execution and implementation of those laws. And, and, and so therefore, you can see how a representative democracy can essentially be an issue when they are not in fact representative of the people. So sort of building off of that, Leslie, in terms of what are the most, you know, like important issues, okay? What are the most important issues for voters going to the polls? You know, like what issues do you think they'll they'll face? For you, I kind of want to know what issues do you think teachers really should maybe hone in on this this year in the classroom if they plan on teaching anything about elections? Yeah, I think that the most important uh, aspect of, of the election is is what's truth and what's not. Um, and, and so I think that teaching um, the students to, to be discerning when it comes to uh, sources is really important. Uh, becoming critical consumers of, of their, of their uh, technology, of their uh, news that they will uh, access from social media very often, uh, making sure that they, you know, they have the tools to uh, to really understand what a quality source is. I think that that's something that teachers can really affect either way. And actually, I I, I won't be teaching the election explicitly in, in some of my courses, uh, but I will be teaching skills that are necessary uh, for this election and going forward. And I think uh, especially important at this point, uh, like I said, teaching kids to be critical consumers of information. Thank you. All right, we are going to switch to the last and final component of our podcast today, which is a segment we're going to try to include in every single podcast episode. Uh, and that segment is going to be called Kid Questions, okay, which is an innovative title. 
for a segment of the podcast in which kids ask us questions. <laughs> Why did people graffiti on our mo- on the monuments of our generals? By the way, happy birthday, Georgia. Um, I, uh, I really appreciate all of your questions. It really uh, shows that you're, you're curious and precocious. And, uh, and so, I'm, like I said, I'm really appreciative of that and jealous of, of your teachers uh, for having you in the classroom. Uh, but as far as the, uh, the monuments go and, and why people were spray painting them, uh, you know, well, first of all, the, we have to talk about what the monuments mean and why they were erected and, and what time frame they were erected. Uh, a lot of these statues represent people who uh, who fought for slavery, who fought for uh, for the Confederacy, and and of course we know that the Confederacy lost the war, uh, but in a way to uh, not not unrelated to our discussion of about American exceptionalism earlier, a way to uh, to tilt the story uh, in favor of their. Uh, in favor of, of their side uh, was to have this lost cause uh, monument uh, on in Richmond on Monument Avenue, right? Such a such a prestigious road. It's in fact the only road in the entire country that's on the National Register uh, of Historic Places. Um, so you see the the uh, that the people are are now taking ownership of those monuments uh, and 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 putting their mark on it because. Uh, this mark was uh, it, it was the, the purpose of it was really to intimidate. Uh, it was to show uh, individuals of color uh, what their place was in the South, despite the fact that slavery had ended, despite the fact that the uh, the Confederacy had lost the war. This was a way to preserve uh, preserve their cause. Uh, and so what happened this summer was uh, was the people taking ownership of this, these monuments and, uh, and making them affect, uh, make, excuse me, making them represent a greater story. They were providing context. Hi, my name is Issa Duenas. I am a senior in high school and 16. And my question has three parts. First, who is the Electoral College? Are they experts on politics or regular people? And do these people change each year? Um, I guess I can take this one on since okay. the last one. I feel like the teacher would be better suited for this question, but, <laughs> but <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, Wesley, but my understanding of the Electoral College, and I would like to say hi, this is Issa. Um, thank you so much um, for your question. It's a great question. People don't generally know what the Electoral College is. From my understanding, it's a group of individuals who in some states I believe might be appointed, but in Louisiana, I know they're elected, um, who are elected essentially to cast votes um, based on the either the percentage of votes that a person wins an election or based on all the votes <laughs> so essentially depending on what state you're in um for instance if you're in a state where it's a winner take all system the elector um, is required to vote for the person who um wins the majority of votes in that state if it's like a was it a representative system uh you get the number of votes um, from electors based on the percentage of votes that you won in that state. I hope that's not too confusing. And so in order to choose electors, like I said, in Louisiana, we specifically um, in our ballot, we can elect our electors and they can be any, any individual um, who, who qualifies essentially. And so there's very specific qualifications. You can, um, go to our secretary of state website. I'm pretty sure you could go to your state's secretary of state website to look at those qualifications to be elector. Generally, you need to be a resident of that state. You need to be a resident of the, we have parishes in Louisiana. You all have cities everywhere else. We're a little funky, but, um, we have parishes. You um, have to be a resident in that parish. And then you have to receive a certain amount of votes. Um, to serve as an elector. 
No, I think that was perfect. That was excellent. You did an amazing job with that. Um, better than I could have, for sure. Um, the Electoral College is so complicated, uh, and I think that just simplified it so beautifully. Thank you, Bianca. That was awesome. So. I think we are getting to the point where we are wrapping up here um, and I just want to thank you all so much for joining us on Content to Classroom. You are the inaugural guests of our pod and we are so excited to have had you on. Um, I was just wondering before we go, uh, we're going to try to do this with all of our guests. Are there any kind of um, final resources that you want to plug uh, for teachers or for listeners of any job that might be um, looking for something relating to elections or equity. Um, and then you're also welcome uh, if there are any social media um, handles that you have that you're looking for people to follow, you are welcome to do that as well. Um, we definitely want uh, people to know where they can find you if you want to be found. <laughs> Wesley, do you want to start really quick? Sure. Uh, so yeah, I'm 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 really happy to be um, part of my school's civil dialogue task force, where we're working on curating common language around civil dialogue and, and teaching toolkits for our teachers. Uh, some of the sources that we've used, like I mentioned, Avid earlier, is great for uh, for conversation starters. Uh, the National Council for the Social Studies. Um, full disclosure, I'm I'm a board member of of the NCSS, but uh, is a great place to to start for teachers, especially looking for uh, tools to to teach for the election, uh, for uh, for anything that uh, teaching about about hard histories, uh, teaching about current events, all of that I really uh, recommend. Uh, I'm happy to say that all of the the boards that I'm a member of, uh, including BCSS, um, is is in some stage of DNI work, and I'm very proud of that. Um, so, so certainly following uh, what, what's happening in Virginia and what's happening um, at NCSS as well would be uh, another uh, recommendation. I also would suggest following SS Chat on Twitter. Uh, that's really helpful for, uh, uh, for really, really free or very, very inexpensive. I mean, I don't, I don't think I've ever paid for uh, uh, any professional development on, on Twitter. And sometimes I'm able to use what I see on there the next day in my classroom. Um, so that would be another source that I uh, that I would recommend. Oh, great. Thank you so much. Those are all amazing. Um, Bianca, do you have any sources that Wesley didn't mention uh, that you would just like to recommend for anyone? Um, yes, uh, a really great source is 411vote um uh, dot org love them you can look up how you vote what your voting rights are you can even look up who your legislatives are um legislators and uh, elected officials are essentially on that website and it actually would take you to your state's website to get that information so i definitely would say that's definitely a source of information for individuals who uh, want to know what, more about the electoral process Okay, great. Well, thank you guys so much. I just can't tell you enough how much we appreciate you both. I know anyone who is listening has just been enriched and empowered by what you said. I know that I have. So I just really appreciate you. And uh, we appreciate you coming on for our first Content to Classroom episode. Uh, listeners, don't forget to follow the Virginia Council for Social Studies on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle for all of those is VA Social Studies, all one word. And if you like today's episode, subscribe and give us a five-star review as it helps others find our podcast. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on Content to Classroom.